one of the things that I want to kind of drive into our minds today is that as we discuss or consider this matter about the Holy Spirit, as we've been doing since Pentecost, is this an attempt to really try to understand or get to know the person of the Holy Spirit? Not just a feeling, not just an influence, not just a, a kind of sweeping through a room, but a real person that we're attempting to learn. How do we relate? How do we learn to relate to this person of the Holy Spirit. Oswald Chambers said, and I'll give you that quote in again in a minute, that the Holy Spirit is really the first person. In fact, it's on your outline there, I think, somewhere. I'll find it here in a second. It's way down there. I'll come back and get it. Uh, but this understanding of relating to God as a person or related to Spirit. I had lunch, breakfast or coffee the other day with a friend of mine, and he said this to me. What does all this language about relationship with God mean? What does that mean? Yeah, I thought, that's a great question. Because, we, you know, we'll hear people say, well, you know, this is not a religion. It's a relationship. Well, what does that mean? What that means, I think, minimally, at least at this point, is that I'm allowing or I'm opening my life to the presence of the Spirit of God in my life. Think about a relationship with friendship, with friends. What are you doing? You're allowing people to come into your life. You're allowing them to come into your life and to interact together. And so when we talk about that Christianity is a relationship, what we're suggesting is, is that we're opening our lives to the presence of another person. We're actually interacting and relating. When I think about this, I, I think about learning to interact with people. Uh, when I was uh, 17 years old in 1971, my dad decided that we were moving to Kentucky. And... Uh, I, I had finished my junior year at French High School in Beaumont, Texas, had my high school senior ring, and my dad said, we're moving. And I said, well, be sure and write. And, uh, you know, I will tell you this. After six months, my dad was ready to send me back to Texas. <laughs> we, we got there. But he, he said he felt like God was moving us to Kentucky. And uh, so we moved there. And, I, you know, I had a lot of different uh, ideas about, about Kentucky. I wasn't really happy about this. I knew there were three million people and four last names. And, and <laughs> anybody from Kentucky? I, sorry. You know, uh, and, and I had a lot of bias. And, and maybe, you know, some of it was obviously not true. But we were moving to a little place called Winchester, Kentucky. Now, as we moved, um, I come into this little town, and this is why I have this picture here uh, that you saw briefly for a second there. Boy, this thing is... Here we go. I drove from Texas. That's not me. <laughs> but I did use gloves like that. <clears throat> uh, I had a Carmen Ghia, uh, which is a, a Volkswagen. Uh, not a lot of them, uh, but uh, they made, but they were kind of the little sporty side of the Volkswagen, and I had one. And I can tell you, I think I was the only person in Kentucky that had one. Uh, but drove it up, went from Texas, had a crazy trip. And we uh, got to Kentucky, and I'd had some problems with it, and so I had to go to a parts house uh, to uh, get some parts uh, for the car. And I remember there was a guy in our church named uh, Bill Fraley. Uh, Bill had a parts house in Winchester, Kentucky, and I knew him, so I decided I'll go there and so I walked up to the, to the counter and talked to a guy, and I'll never, uh, I'll never, never quite forget this uh, experience. The guy's name was Chuck. Now Chuck was working there, and he'd been there for a while, and there's, there's nothing wrong with this, but, I mean, he was a pretty rough-cut guy. You know, I mean, he still had some grease under his fingernails, and, you know, and he was working in a parts house, and wonderful guy and a good guy. So, I mean, he was, you know, what I figured a person that worked at a parts house. And so I'm talking to him, and I said, I needed to buy this part, and, and he was looking around, and, and, and he comes back and says this to me. And I'm realizing I've moved to a place I'm not sure I know how to relate to people. Chuck says this to me, well, we don't have this in stock, but honey, we can get it later. <laughs> Remember where I told you I was from? Texas. <laughs> I just stood there, kind of frozen, and left. <laughs> I come to find out through some of my friends and Bill Fraley and others that in Kentucky, older people years ago called each other honey. I didn't know that. I'm all of a sudden thinking, this is getting weird. <laughs> okay? I mean, 
I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I'm not, I don't know what to do. Now I learned all kinds of things like that. You know, when I lived in Louisiana, I learned that when you relate to somebody and somebody talks to you, and I kept hearing them say this, they said, Oh, Sha, how you do? I went, What? Sha. That's uh, kind of short for Moshe, which means dear one. And people are always saying, Oh, Moshe, how you do? Or they say, We're going to go to a fatal do. And I say, What that is? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm serious. That's a dance. <laughs> yeah, that's a dance. Or they had a different pronoun agreement than I did in Louisiana. When they talked, they would say this. You'd ask them a question. They'd go, me? I don't know. <laughs> did you just say me? <laughs> yeah, they, me? I don't know. Or if you were talking to them and they said, I, I got some direction. You know, you go too far on a street. You don't go back. You ungo that street. <laughs> I understood, right? I just wasn't familiar with that. Ungo. You've heard it. We're going to pass a good time. How's your mom and them? You know, Fado do, that's the dance. Uh, one other, lanyap, which means uh, I got a pizza one time and I didn't order a salad and they brought it anyway. And I had to pay for it. And I said, what's that? He said, lanyap. That just means a little extra. You didn't have to pay for it. So, you know, you know when I lived in Kentucky, I had to learn some of the language issues. When I, when, when I lived in Louisiana, I had to brought myself there fast. <laughs> I could talk with them a little bit, you know. I say, man, you done brought yourself back four or three times. They also count backwards. Yeah. You don't go three or four times, you go four or three. So in, in learning to get along with people and, and, and experience that, I, I sort of had to learn the language. I had to learn how people talk. Why? Because I was wanting to learn to relate to them. I wanted to be able to relate to people. And that's true in culture. It's true in our world. And it's probably an understanding that uh, if, if we're going to learn to relate to the Holy Spirit, we've got to learn the language. We, we've got to learn who this person is. We, we've, got to, we've got to take attention and time to at least consider uh, what, um, what's going on here. Now, last week, um, I sort of ended on something I, I, all week I went home and thought about. And that's dangerous because I'm out of school right now. I got a lot of time on my hand. And I drew this thing here. It's interesting, isn't it? Nobody in this church fit, cleans anything. <laughs> See, I wrote this last week. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, because I said in learning to relate to God as a person, the Holy Spirit particularly, I think it, it, it's important that we understand the nature of this person. And I have suggested over time, and you've heard this before, that some of the ways we talk about God or understand him, I think, re relies on how we're going to relate to him, how we're going to re respond to him. You know, people talk about God. What, what are some of the names you've heard them talk about with God? I mean, these kind of general, generic terms. What, what do people call God? Father, okay. Y'all are getting real religious on me here. <laughs> I'm talking at the parts house. <laughs> huh? The man upstairs, right? The big guy. You know, we talk about karma. Uh, my grandmother, uh, who was not very religious at all, my mother's side, who's now gone on, when you would talk to her about things, she'd say, well, we're just blessed by heaven. And I thought, is there anybody up there? You know, <laughs> heaven, I, I get that. But, but this notion, this understanding of, of really relating to God and who he is. Um, I thought when I left, uh, after I had uh, discussed this, when I said that God is holy love, that that's his essence, that anything about him that we understand, power, omniscience, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, that whatever these other, what these attributes are, are not who God is. This is more maybe aligned to this. Here's Chambers' statement I had for you, that the Holy Spirit's the first power we practically experience, but it's usually the last person we come to understand. There's a lot of talk about Jesus, a lot of talk about the Father, but a lot of times us relating and understanding the Spirit is a, is a challenge for a lot of us. And this is because I think of the person of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> that should be on your hand out there. The person of the Holy Spirit. We discussed that uh, in, in, in some measure. Uh, and if you'll listen to the recording, you can. The person. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but if we, if we 
move this forward here if, I, if, I've, if I've got this right. <clears throat> Some people I'm going to think when they say, Cliff, you say God is holy love or God is love. Well, what about this holy thing? What about, what about God's holiness? What, what about Him being holy? That's why I said holy love. I want to try to unpack that uh, to some extent. Because uh, the idea of holy love is love that makes distinctions. Okay? Holy love is love that makes distinctions. So what are we going to do about this idea? About holiness or holy love? One thing we might do is we might just reject the Old Testament. You know, there are people that, you know, if you ever talk about holiness or holy or like that, and you ever refer to the Old Testament, they're just going to reject it. Forget it. That's probably not a good idea. Uh, in, in the first century, there was a heretic uh, uh, whose name was Marcion. And he made this statement. He said that this understanding of holiness and love is in such con contradiction. This understanding of holiness and love is in such contradiction that he said this, that the God of the Old Testament is the devil of the new. That's a pretty extreme position. <laughs> That, that there's such a difficulty in balancing holiness and love. How do you, how do you balance this out? Because when I left, I just, I'm thinking, I'm saying, Cliff, maybe when you said God is holy love or his essential nature is love, people are going to have some questions about, okay, but what about his holiness? What about his righteousness? Those, those want to try to work with that. So we might, if we want to, if we decide what we're going to do is just reject the Old Testament. Just forget it. Might, might just forget about it. Or I'm going to suggest maybe we revisit the Old Testament. <clears throat> Instead of rejecting it, maybe revisit it. This is more theology than I had planned last week, but I, I feel like I've got to unpack just a bit here, and that's this. The Old Testament, if we read it correctly, in my judgment and the judgment of others, is that we have to understand that the Old Testament is what we call progressive revelation. Progressive God is progressively revealing himself to the Old Testament as human beings are capable of doing. For instance, when God tells in the Old Testament an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, when we get to the New Testament, it says, turn the other cheek. Well, what we've got in the Old Testament back here is we got people that it's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's seven eyes for seven. It's, it's seven eyes for one eye. It's seven teeth for one tooth. So, so God is trying to slow down revenge as they're able to understand, as they're able to recognize. So there's this progressive line of revelation. That's why in the book of Hebrews it can say this, that, that Jesus is the final, full, complete revelation. It, anything that is back is moving its way to Him, that it's the full and final revelation. And so I think... If we're going to understand this holy love concept, we may have to revisit the Old Testament, that there are some things in the Old Testament that are partial, that are incomplete, <clears throat> that are moving toward fulfillment and fullness in the New Testament. So we've got to be careful <clears throat> here to not reject the Old Testament, but we've got to revisit it to say, what's its role and function? It's preparatory. It's progressive. It's revelation as human beings can understand and grow. So that's one thing. A second thing in revisiting uh, this uh, matter is to revisit it as it relates to the word holy. This is where I really wanted to spend some time today, and uh, I, I want to discuss this. Uh, I think that the, the misuse of the word holy, because you hear people who misuse it right now, can be traced back to Batman and Robin. Okay? I'm telling you. I've got a video. I'm not going to do it today, but I, I've got a video. Where Robin, you know, holy, you know, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like holy migraine. Uh, holy, one of them I saw, it's a holy carport. You know, it's crazy. You know, I told Becky this, and again, the thoughts and opinions of the teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church. It's elders or leadership. I watched a bunch of those. You know, what, what, it, what is Robin saying? Holy, I get chained up. He said, holy handcuffs. What, what do you think he's trying to say there? You can answer this. With great emphasis? That this is something significant or unusual? It's a big deal? Now, I'm offended by Robin as a theologian. 
But the more I watch those, I, I want to ask you to consider something. He may have a clear understanding of what the word holy means. It's misused. And so I want to revisit this because I think the word holy as it's ascribed to God like that, or holy as it's ascribed in our life may not be understood correctly. Let me, let me explain to you this way. Holy, or the, the Hebrew word kodesh, you can, uh, it's Q-O-D-E-S-H, kodesh in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, it's, it's a hagias, literally means separate, different, different, separate. Uh, because the opposite, or not the, the, the antonym, or the opposite of holy, I've told you before, but the opposite of holy is, as my students would say, what's the opposite? What? Unholy. Uh, good. <laughs> Tell them their parents are wasting their money. <laughs> the opposite of holy is common. Common. Not separated. Not de- so if Robin is saying this situation we're in where we've got these handcuffs on is the most unusual we've ever been in and we've never been in this situation before. It is then what? Different. Separate. Again, I'm not trying to defend Robin and Batman. Adam West is arguably the worst actor in the history of the world. (laughs) Right? You know, maybe Jerry Mathers is right behind him. But terrible. Man, when Jerry Mathers grew up, it was painful to watch that guy. That... That, that this idea of separate or different is meaning it's uncommon. To me, that's an important distinction. That, that, that the idea of separation. Now, you know, when we think about God, when we think about his separation. I, I've got a few ideas here on this idea. When we think of God and his separation, certainly God is separate, different than creation. Christians aren't pantheists. Or we think there's just a big force out there. You know, the force be with you. Or Spock, you know. Uh, that, that God is separate. He's different than the creation. Right? Except that. So another way he's separate and different is he's separate and different in, I would say, morality. He's pure. Righteous. Always good. That Those are the basic meanings there. Now, He's separate from those things. He's, he's separate. He's separate in power. N- nobody has the power he has. But I want to ask you to consider something. Is this God different and separate in how he uses power? Is that the distinction? Not only that he has the most of it, but that he uses it differently. Is that what makes him holy and set apart and separated from every other? I said to you before, the idea of power with any God is part of the job description. Okay? You have said anything. In fact, one writer that I read and it really helped, been helped by this is the fact that God has power is no guarantee he'll be good. Just think about that. The fact that God has power is no guarantee that he will be good. In fact, I'll say it another way. If we emphasize the essential nature of God as power, and it may be true some of it, but if we, if, we, if we associate God's essential nature as power, that's where all our theological questions come from. Here it is. If God is so powerful, why is there evil in the world? Whoa. If God is so powerful, why does he let that stuff happen? Why? Because we've associated the nature of God First and foremost, in power. I'm going to suggest to you, and here's where I'm going with this. I was talking to some friends of mine the other day. I'm still working on this. So, you know, again, the thoughts and opinions of the teacher, not, you know, I've, I just don't want to get called into the office tomorrow. So, what if, what if this separated, different one, this separated, different one, is separated and different, uncommon with any of us or anything else, is separated and different in his capacity and his ability to love selflessly. What if that's it? What if God's holiness, his separation, his difference with the creation, his difference with human beings, 
is he really is that good. He really is that beautiful. He really is that engaging. He's different. He's separate. He's distinct from any other thing, creature, experience, power, you name it, in the universe. How about that? How about that God is the only one who can completely love unselfishly? How are you doing with that? <laughs> How am I doing with that? This morning I was in my prayer time before I started finishing up studying. I, I said, Lord, because I've been working through this, I, I love you. I heard a story about an old peasant that would go to church, and a Catholic church, and he would kneel down at the altar and, and uh, he would look at the, the Christ on the cross and for about an hour he would stay there. And the priest got concerned because this guy was wasting a lot of time, right? You know, come on, go to work. And uh, he's a millennial. And uh, <laughs> that was cheap shot. Sorry, that was cheap. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm cheap. That was cheap. But if you live in your parents' basement, you can do that. No, no. Uh, that's cheap again. Uh, he said, you know, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, we're just talking. He said, what are y'all talking about? He's saying, I'm telling him I love him. And he's telling me he loves me. And then I tell him I love you. And you love me. You know, I was praying this morning. I said, Lord, I love you. But man, it's mixed up with lots of other things. It's mixed up with things I want. It's mixed up with goals that I have for the future. It's mixed up with people that if they treat me right. And I just said this morning, I, you know, I've known this for a long time, but as I've worked through this through the week, I just said, Lord, I love you, but it's so mixed up. It's so mixed up. You know what? His love's not mixed up. His love's not mixed up. I mean, how do you know that, Cliff? Well, I know that on a couple of reasons. I, I just want to tell you in, in this revisiting the Old Testament word of, of holiness. Marty's just taken us through and the staff's taken us through the book of Jonah. Maybe I ought to read that again because in that book, it's an evangelistic book to say to Israel, I love the heathen, the Assyrian. Listen, one of the reasons Jonah does not want to help them is because Assyria is getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and they're the main military threat to Israel that's going to come get them. And God says, I still love them. Here's a great verse. You go look in Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32. Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32. Where God says, I don't, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would that they would turn and live. I, 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 don't, I don't take any, it says right there, I, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would that they would turn and live. Why? Because God loves unselfishly. He's the only one. It. And when we think of holiness only in terms of moral purity, or we think of holiness in separation, like God's up there and I'm down here, we completely lose contact with the way this God's revealed himself to say, my holiness or my otherness or my distinctiveness has to be understood as some concept of love. And what I've said to you here is this. Holy love has to inform every attribute of God or he gets at conflict with himself. Told you it's not the Yabbat theology. He's justice. Yeah, but he's also love. That in this old notion, okay, well, now I want to, I, I, you got to read, go to your Bible, go to your table of contents. You got to, okay, some of you smarties think you can do this, but I don't, Hosea, how about that? Yeah, watch people flip pages now who don't have the courage to go to their table of contents. Yeah, Mary Jane's got one of the cheater Bibles. Got all those things on the side. Yeah. Yeah, cheater. 850. 
this is, uh, this is again, I, I think we, we've, we've read the Old Testament and we've not read it well. We've not read it carefully. And this idea of God's holy love or holiness gets messed up in, uh, in our thinking. It's over here in, in Hosea. I'm sorry, I didn't give you the chapter. Hosea chapter 11. Uh, you, 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 could, you should read the whole chapter at some point. I'm going to read it. <laughs> here we go. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the idea of these other countries, the more they went after and they kept sacrificing to Baal. You know, this would be an interesting thing for you to do sometime. It just occurred to me. The gods of Mesopotamia, the gods of the Greeks and the gods of the Romans were typically known for power. In fact, the word Baal means master, Lord. In the Old Testament, God says to them one time, don't you ever call me Baal. You call me Yahweh. I am. I'm here. I'm here. I, I am what you need. I'm not. He is Lord and Master of the Universe. But he's saying, don't call me that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a fascinating study for you. Verse 3, but it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man with the bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. That's how you'd kill somebody in the ancient world. You take them, put a yoke over their jaws, put them out in the desert. They can't open their mouth to eat or drink. And he says, I'm the one. When Egypt was doing that to you, when others were doing that to you, I'm the one that did that. I bent down and led them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. Because they refuse to turn to me. The sword will swirl against their cities, demolish their gates, consume because their councils. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call out to the one on high, none exalts him. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Or how can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? Or that I treat you like Zebulun? My heart is turned over within me. This is God speaking. My heart is turned over within me. My compassions are kindled. And I love this verse. I will not execute my anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Why? Because I am God. And what? Not a man. The Holy One in your midst. What would a man do? Punish him. What would a man do? Pay him back. What would a man do? You made your bed, sleep in it. What would a man do? You knew it. You did it. It's on you. And he says this, I'm, I'm not going to do this because I am not a man. What is he? I'm the holy one in your midst. I think in some ways we've misread the Old Testament and we've fallen into the consistent understanding of gods that begin with the notion of power. I want to suggest to you this God has all the power in the universe and he uses it in a unique way that no other God in the history of humankind has ever done. Ever. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world when they got their act together, right? <laughs> when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 2, 4 says this, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not your repentance that causes God to be kind to you. Think about that. It's the kindness of God, Romans 2, 4, that leads you to repentance. It's His kindness. It's not your repentance that makes God kind to you. Romans 5, 8, well, while we were yet sinners, our God demonstrates His love toward us. Romans 5, God demonstrates His love toward us. I told you before that word, I love that word, demonstrate. How, 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 how weak is English? The word <clears throat> demonstrates. God, Romans 5, for God demonstrates his love toward us. And while you are at sinners, Christ died for us. Paul even goes to this. Well, for a righteous man, somebody might 
think about dying, but for an ungodly, no way. He can't even get his head wrapped around it. For, for a righteous one, somebody might dare to die. But while we were sinners, Christ died. The word demonstrate, you may know, is a Greek term that means this, to stand with you. To stand with you. Notice that. God stands with us in His love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go, go read that. Look at this. God, the word demonstrates is a translation of histamine, which means God stands with us in His love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we ever worry that if God stood with us when we were sinners, that He wouldn't stand with us when we're His fumbling and bumbling children? Why would, why would, why would we worry about that? If God will stand with you when you're a sinner. By the way, go, go look at that verse from 8, 5, 8 to 13. There are four names you get. Sinner, weak, enemies, unrighteous. That's who we were. If he stands with us then, why would he not stand with us when we're his fumbling, bumbling kids? So that this notion, I'm not a man. This is the Old Testament, folks. They're saying that I'm not a man. I'm, here's the good news. I'll translate it for you. I'm not like you. Isn't that good news? Yeah, I'm not like you. So whatever you think and whatever you project on God, because that's who you are, forget it. <laughs> He's holy. He's separate. He's different. And I want to suggest it's not just in power. It's in the execution of that power. How he executes that power. That power is executed in love. I'll tell you a quick story. I'm going to finish today one way or the other. <clears throat> There's a great story by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. It's called The King and the Maiden. <clears throat> and he wrote this, of course, a long time ago. <clears throat> but he tells the story about a king who fell in love with a common maiden. And the king was like no other king. No one dared to belittle him or go against his word. He had the strength to crush all of his opponents. And this mighty king was melted by love for this small young maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness hands were tied. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared to resist. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief that the life she had left behind, would she be happy at his side? How could he know this? He couldn't, how could he know? If he rode to her to the forest cottage in his royal carriage with armed escorts waving bright banners and overwhelm her, he did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover who was equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden and to let love cross the gulf between them for it's only in love that the unequal can be made equal. So Kierkegaard goes on to tell the story. The king clothes himself as a beggar, renounces his throne in order to win her hand and lives among them until she understands his love for her as equals, and they fall in love together, they get married, and then she finds out he's the king then. Kierkegaard says this is the incarnation. That Jesus Christ became a humble servant to demonstrate the heart of God for people. At the point of our deepest need, our furthest from him, he came in the form, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is your God. Kierkegaard, you ought, you ought to go read. It's called the, the, the Parable of the King and the Handmaid. I read it in seminary 40 years ago. You see, when we associate God's nature with power, we have all kinds of problems. But if we associate that power with the exercise of it through love, 
We come to hear the good news. Now, my brain works in all kinds of weird ways. Because power <clears throat> provides no guarantee of concern. You couldn't be sure of God's concern for you if his ultimate attribute is power. You can only be assured of his concern for you or love for you, or care for you, if his ultimate attribute or his ultimate essence, who he is, holy, set apart, this is how he's different, love. So I'm going to be assured of that. Disney did something like this. Maybe I, I don't watch a lot of this stuff, but because um, it's not true. I don't read fiction. And, uh, but you think about it. They, they, we've tried to get at this story at times. The beauty and the beast. The beast could not be changed until someone loved him for who he was. Until someone loved him. For it couldn't be power, couldn't be fear, couldn't be reward. Since Kierkegaard, since others, there's been this attempt to try to, to, to if you will, maybe almost intuitively to try to understand the power, the strength, the might of the love of God in fairy tales, in stories, and all kinds, to try to bring us back, like C.S. Lewis said, that our imaginations have gone away. That we fail to imagine, understand this great lover, this great God who comes to us in fairy tales and stories and other things to remind us that we can really be transformed by the power of love. So here's what I want you to think about this. And I, I, think, I, have a, I think I have a slide here. I, who knows what I have. This is a little bit different take. But this one on the left, this is not, this, this is not who God is. God is, and then just rattle off the list. That's what I was taught in college. And I got the Yabbit theology. He's merciful, yeah, but he's also just. And so he got this God who's constantly trying to fight with himself. If there is any justice, it is expressed in holy love. If there is any mercy, it's expressed in holy love. If there is any omniscience, it's expressed in holy love. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And so I just want to ask you to consider, as we've kept working, if, we're, if I want to get to know you, I think I have to come to this point in my own understanding, is who is this Holy Spirit? He's holy. He's different. He's separate. He's apart. He's not like us. How? He's not part of creation. He has power that we don't have. And that power is relegated or regulated or lived out of love. Does that make sense? I, I think this is the gospel. I, I might even recommend a book that you, imagine that, huh? I might write a, recommend a book and, and he's taking on a, a, a very famous piece of literature and uh, it's okay. <clears throat> uh, there, are, there are two of them uh, I, I'd recommend and you know, you have to read books like you eat fish. Eat the fish and spit out the bones. The first one is by Brad Jerzak, J-E-R-S-A-K. Brad Jerzak, Jerzak. It's kind of a troubling title. A More Christ-like God. A More Christ-like God. Brad Jerzak, he's a uh, PhD in... Uh, and uh, uh, patristics are the church fathers. He's, he's going back to the church fathers where they teach a, a more Christ-like God. The second one is that this one is a great piece of literature is by a guy named Brian Zahn, Z-A-H-N. And its name is Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. <laughs> kind of a takeoff of Edwards, you know, Sinners in the Hands of a Angry God. Zahn has said, let's, let's, let's look at this again. Sinners in the Hands of of a loving God. Now, I said all that because I want to move quickly through a couple of things on how to continue to relate. But when I left last week, I just thought, in the back of my mind and in a lot of people's minds, this idea of holiness is where, where love and holiness get in conflict with each other. But remember now, holy means separate, different, distinct. You, you'll have to have some conclusion on your own here. How is God really separate and distinct? What is his real nature with respect to that? So, 
I want to I want to move on. So in this relationship, so let's let's go to this now. You got that? Our relating to this person. Our relating. Last week, and, and by the way, I, here's the impulse that that pushed all this. I was telling Becky as we were walking, she was giving me some notes to write down. <laughs> she helps me think stuff through. Um. There are these statements in the gospel or the, the epistles that have to do with our relating to the Holy Spirit. That I just want to say this that, that we really do relate, can I say it this way, affect the Holy Spirit. This God is not a power guy or power God. He's not a guy, but not a power God. Th- this God can be, we said last week, grieved. Ephesians 4.30, we, we talked a lot about that. If you want to listen to the recording. He can, he can, he can be great because we're in a relationship here. He's a relationship of holy love. He desires the best for us. He's selfless love for you and me and everybody that's ever drawn a breath. So, so this, I, I, I would give you this statement. Relationships create the capacity for response. Relationships create the capacity for response. And so what are these relationships, these capacities that we can have with the Holy Spirit that we, we ought to be alert to or attentive to? Not judging, not, not afraid. Okay, so here's, here's the first we said he, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Number two, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Love can be resisted. Power can't. You can't resist power. Power will run right over the top of you. But if God's nature... So go to Acts chapter 7 real quick. Go to your table of contents. Or find your Bible. Go to Acts chapter 7. And my Bible is 1035. Acts chapter 7. This is a very famous passage here about Stephen as he's giving his testimony uh, to, the, to the Jews. <clears throat> that, that this idea that the Holy Spirit can only be grieved because we're in a real relationship here. He's not going to overpower you. He's not going to make you do anything. He can be resisted. Look at Acts 7. We're going to look through here. I'll get kind of toward the end. After, um, uh, in verse, uh, uh, verse 44, you know, or Stephen does an incredible job of working through the Old Testament of how Israel's related to God. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle testimony in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses. Verse 45, and having received in their turn, our fathers brought in Joshua, dispossessing the nations whom God drove out. Verse 46, David, favor, uh, David found favor in God's sight. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built the house for him. Verse 40, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses. Then he comes down to 51. He says this, you men who are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Notice that word there, resist. I just want to kind of look at this here for a couple of minutes uh, in, this, in this idea of resisting. If God is power, can you resist Him? No. I mean, you know, this gets really dug into our consciousness that we think God's all power. And so, again, this is Cliff, thoughts and opinions, not necessarily. I I hear people ascribe things to God that I think there's no way he did that. Or you're going to put him on a moral trial. Because we think God can't be resisted. He can be. You and I have the capacity because he has demonstrated himself and willingness to be loved that we can resist him. Isn't that a fascinating thing? Uh, Really, the word resist here means to fall against, to fall on or fall against. This is astounding that the Holy Spirit can be resisted in my life. People might ask, well, how does that happen? Well, you know, in a lot of different ways where we might resist the Spirit as we understand what the Scripture might be asking us or telling us how to live. We might, we might resist Him. We might say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Well, He's not going to just come and whack you on top of the head. You know? I, peop- I hear people say, well, you know, uh, you know, God's in control. And I always go, of what? <laughs> Finish the sentence. Is He in control of you? Is He making you do what you ought to do today? 
Is he, is he making you do what you ought to do today? Is he going to do that? He's going to say, now, Cliff, you've got to do the right thing today. I'm not going to let you do anything else. Of course not. Because we've got this idea of power behind us instead of love that says, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in you doing this. Now, I don't think I'll do that. I can resist him. How will I do that? Well, again, through as we read Scripture, as we understand what it says, we might say, I'm not going to do that. You don't have to. You, know, you don't have to. Another way we might resist the Spirit. I, I thought about this. Uh, you know, we, we can resist the Spirit sometimes when we already make up our mind about what truth is. You know, we already got all figured out. The Spirit may be trying to explain some things to us or help us to understand some things. I've often said this to my students. It's fascinating to me. I'm sure it can be, there are exceptions to this. But, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm not going there anymore because I'm not being fed. And I've got to be careful, you know, because my mouth gets ahead of my brain sometimes. <laughs> that can happen, I'm sure. That, that, that can happen, I'm sure. But sometimes people can't eat what's being served. <laughs> right? How can we resist? Because... We refuse to take in anything different than what we've already had, right? Becky tries to get me to experiment with restaurants. I don't do that. <laughs> it costs money. <laughs> I don't mess around with that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to be easier now. Hold on, Beck. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Say, oh, let's go to this new place. We've never... Nope, not going. See, the, the, the idea there of, of, of resist. <laughs> It's a dumb idea. But, but, but the understanding here is I can have my mind already made up about stuff. You know, that can't be true. Really? Are you sure? Is it not possible that you should be open to this? I, I say, again, to my students, you know, you know what you know, but what you know isn't all there is to know, you know? <laughs> and they still can't get that written down. What you know, you know, but what you know is not all there is to know. Okay, let's settle that. How can we resist? Because we've got these biases. We've got these ideas. We've got these tendencies. Instead of just saying, well, you know, maybe you ought to just listen to this. I mean, I've listened to stuff where I go, nope. No, that, 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 uh, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't get it there, I don't think. I'll tell you another thing that happens, I think, how we resist if we're not alert sometimes it's our relationships. Again, when I've had my students, or had people say this to me, now, not every time, okay, so I'm, I'm not, not like a universal principle here. But I've had people say to me, well, I, you know, I don't, I'm not being fed by this teacher or preacher. You know what my first question is? What have they done to you? Or not done to you? You know what I usually find out? There's an offense in that relationship somewhere. Didn't come visit me in the hospital. You didn't remember to send me a birthday card. Something happened here. And that resistance is, is born out of offense. I've just seen it too many times to not at least go after that first. Say, well, I'm not being fed. Okay, could be. It's very possible. I've heard some terrible teachings before. Been one of them lots of times. But often... Our resistance of the Spirit is because we've gotten mixed up and messed up in a relationship somewhere. So we, we can't allow the Spirit to do something for us. So can the Holy Spirit... I mean, just think about this. If God the Holy Spirit is love, and this is the relationship He wants with us, we can resist Him. I'm not trying to make you neurotic or try to take your spiritual pulse all the time. You know, some of us like that. Oh, well, wait, I, wait a minute, spiritually, am I, how am I doing? I, you know, feel close to God, feel far. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about developing a lifestyle of openness to say, could this be something the Spirit is guiding me? Now, let me give you some tests, if you will. <clears throat> let me give you a couple of tests. One is, <clears throat> if the Spirit's leading you, in my judgment, one, there, there's going to be a way that the fruit of the Spirit is going to be somehow developed. Okay? That's the pipes here, so or something. <laughs> I'm a professional. It didn't bother me. 
that, that if, if the Spirit is leading, or we sense some movement to say, okay, is it helping to develop the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Uh, uh, Galatians 5. Number two, if the Spirit is leading, I want to suggest out of, out of John 16, 25, that it's going to be making much of Jesus. I want to be careful here. Not much of a teacher, not much of a church, not much of a denomination or a group. Jesus said this, when he comes, he'll speak of me. He will glorify me. He will not speak of himself. So, so is there being made much of Jesus? Or is some teacher or preacher or denomination or group or experience being manifest? Wait a minute. My, I'm just saying my, my spiritual Geiger counter goes off when I start hearing people talk about an experience or hear them talk about a denomination or hear them talk about a group or hear them talk about a preacher or hear them talk about a teacher or hear about blah, blah. I say, whoa, hold it. Where's Jesus in this? Where is he? Because the Holy Spirit's work is to make much of him. It's to produce fruit in our life and in my judgment, Lastly, there are probably lots more here. Lastly, it's going to meet a need that helps people. Now, not let me say that every need is not your call. Okay, I'm not saying that. But there's a need here that you're able to do something to help others. So we can resist the Spirit or we can respond to the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Do you need to change the way you think about God as terms of power or love? Do you make an adjustment here <clears throat> to say, my view of God has been way too in the area of power. What I need to do is make an adjustment in the area of God as love, wholly distinct. Now, the reason I say that is this. Remember, we're a church, lives by faith, or walks by faith. What? A source of hope. And known by what? Love. love. What kind of love? Holy love. The kind of love that we've experienced. I'll just say it this way. You can't do this. I can't do this on my own. Unless you and I have experienced this kind of love, this kind of experience with God, we can't produce this. So this week, what is it? Power or love? Let's pray. Lord Jesus... Um, I always kind of feel dumb talking about who you are, who the Trinity is in their essence. And yet I do feel and sense that it's an important matter. Would you please take what I've said that's chaff and just maybe close idea and burn it up. And the things that are true and accurate about your nature and who you are, that would inflame and, and, and ignite us to literally be known by love because we know that's who you are. So would you lead us as you promised you would to be led by the Spirit? Guide us, help us, direct us in these important matters. For Jesus' sake, for our sake, we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen.